All right. Good morning. Good morning. And welcome to White Oak Baptist Church. Let's all find our places as we're greeting one another and turn in our hymnals to hymn 391, Trust and Obey. We'll do the first, third, and fifth. And let's all stand together. Let's all stand together. When we walk with the Lord in the light of His Word, what a glory He sheds on our way. While we do His good will, He abides with us still, and with all who will trust and obey, trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Number three, not a burden we bear, not a sorrow we share, but our toil He doth richly repay. Not a grief nor a loss, not a frown nor a cross, but is blessed if we trust and obey, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. Number five. Then in fellowship sweet, we will sit at His feet, or we'll walk by His side in the rain. What He says we will do, where He says we will go, never fear, only trust and obey, trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Good morning. Welcome to church today. On this fine February morning, we're about a month and a half away from spring. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. All right. Um, uh, good to see some um, uh, familiar faces. Uh, uh, Glenda, where, where did you go, Glenda? You're here somewhere. There you are. Glenda's been in California for the last couple months. And uh, welcome back to Connecticut in the cold. We're thrilled to death to have you back. Really good to see you again. She's been out spending time with her daughter. And uh, we, uh, we love you. We've been missing you. We're glad you're, you're back with your church family today. Welcome home. Uh, but uh, very good. Uh, Looking forward to what God has for us today. Looking forward to a good time in God's house and around His Word. And so uh, let's greet one another. If you haven't shaken, well, before we do that, just a minute. The flu is going around. After you shake hands, don't go putting your fingers in your mouth. And if you are sick or you think you might be sick, then, then just wave at people, all right? And uh, use that hand sanitizer if you have some. If you have it, then be uh, generous and share. All right? Very good. Let's greet one another in the Lord. We'll come back. We'll sing that chorus in just a moment.
Let's sing that chorus together. Words are up on the screen. Sing out with me now. Here we go. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. Let's pray this morning. As we do, let's remember, uh, let me first share this with you before we pray. How many remember Brother Alan Johnson that was part of our church for quite a while? His son James got into a nasty car accident. He is in critical condition in the hospital in New Jersey. I believe they're going to have surgery for him today. The Johnson parents have raced down in New Jersey to be with him. And so as we go to the Lord in prayer, let's pray for James and ask that God would help him during a very difficult time and would touch him. All right, let's remember him and many others that are going through serious problems. Pastor Mike, you would come pray for us. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we're thinking of James, and we ask that you please help him to recover. Lord, would you touch his body, and I pray that uh, the travels down to Jersey would be safe, that you give the Johnsons wisdom. Lord, thank you for the service we can have have this morning. Uh, Lord, we are here to worship you. We are here to uh, sing your hymns. We are here to hear from your word. Lord, challenge us and encourage us to do more for thee. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Please take your hymnals again and turn to hymn 11. I sing the mighty power of God. We'll sing the entire song. I sing the mighty power of God that made the mountains rise, that spread the flowing seas abroad and built the lofty skies. I sing the wisdom that ordained the sun to rule the day. The moon shines full at his command, and all the stars obey. Number two, I sing the goodness of the Lord that filled the earth with food. He formed the creatures with his word, and then pronounced them good. Lord, how thy wonders are displayed, where'er I turn my eye. If I survey the ground I tread, or gaze upon the sky. Number three. There's not a plant or flower below, but makes thy glories known. And clouds arise and tempests blow by order from thy throne. While all that borrows life from thee is ever in thy care. And everywhere that man can be, thou God art present there. All right, ushers, let's have you make your way forward. And we have some people visiting with us today. We'd like to welcome them, give them a gift and a connection card. So if you're visiting with us today, first time here, or it's just been quite a while since you've been here, if you wouldn't mind, slip up your hand. One of our ushers will make their way to you right down here. 
on my left. Very good. Glad you came today. And then right here on my right, we have a couple that's visiting. Uh, and uh, let's see, anybody else? All right. Back here on the far right, looks like we've got a young man visiting with us today with his family, potentially. Thank you very much for coming and checking us out today. Uh, I know there's a lot of things you can do with your time. I know that in the day and age we live, time is a precious commodity and you've chosen to be here with us. And we are very thankful for that. If you wouldn't mind, accept the book as a gift and we ask that you would take the time to read that. It shares with you the most important message uh, that our church believes in and could share. And then if you would uh, right now, fill out that connection card and drop that in the offering plate in a few minutes when it comes by. That way we have a record of your visit. All right. To those that regularly attend and are members of our church, uh, um, uh, we uh, gave these out last week. Parking lot and sign renovation. We're looking to do some uh, improvements around our facilities. And so if you're visiting or have only been to our church a couple of times, you can tune me out for a few minutes. Amen. All right. But uh, ushers, if you'll come forward, if you did not get one of these last week or you lost yours and would like another, if you would uh, hold up your hand and we'd like to get you one of these quickly. And so. Uh, whether you were not here last week or you don't have yours with yours in the service, we ask that you slip up a hand that way we can get you one. Uh, again, this is for our regular attendees. Anybody's welcome to it, but uh, specifically we're going after our regular attendees here, members. Uh, we're trying to uh, beautify the house of the Lord. I've spent the last two Sunday evenings preaching out of the book of Haggai, talking about how that uh, God had ordered the Israelites to not ignore his house and to beautify his house. And so um, uh, we're trying to uh, accomplish several different capital improvement type projects around the property this year and make our facilities look a little more modern and up to date. And so uh, uh, phase one is the parking lot and and putting a new sign out front. And so if you wouldn't mind um, the right notice, there's no uh, if you have yours, if you pull it out, uh, if there's no spot on the on there for your name, we're not interested in knowing who's giving what. We're just trying to get an idea of the willingness to give and help us. So if you would this morning or this evening, all day today, we'll be collecting these. If you would tear off uh, the right portion and write on there, fill that out right on there, what you plan on giving and your method of giving that, and then place that in the offering plate, that will help us. We're trying to receive uh, the money to do the parking lot and sign renovations by March 25th. It's the last Sunday in March. Clearly, if you want to give beyond that, you can, uh, but we'll be doing uh, capital improvement projects all year round. Now, I also want to make this clear that if you give toward the parking lot and the sign and we have more given than we need, then that money will be rolled into the next capital improvement project. I want to make sure everybody's aware of that, knows how, that's how that works. So if you write parking lot and sign on your giving envelope and we have more than we need, we'll roll that money into the next project for this year uh, for the, the spring uh, renovation project. So the left section is for you to keep as a reminder to the commitment you're making to the church and also to the Lord. So uh, let's get those in today, all day today. We look forward to seeing what God is going to do. There's a couple more prayer requests to consider before we move on with the service. Joanne Wilson has uh, uh, been faithful to our church now for well over a year. Uh, she's been going through some very serious and um, painful uh, medical trials and has not been able to be here in a couple of months. If you would, can we, as a church, can we band together and pray for Joanne? Uh, Joanne, when she's here, is such a tremendous blessing. She comes and cleans our buildings every week. She's very faithful and uh, very giving and helpful. And uh, we miss Joanne here, so let's pray for Joanne. Also, Maria Pete is not able to be here. She's recovering. 
and um, uh, from three different surgeries she's had in a relatively short time, so pray for her. And then uh, last week I made a mention of this in the morning service. I made a bigger deal out of it Sunday night and Wednesday night. But the couple that got baptized last Sunday morning, you all remember the couple that got baptized. Michelle uh, was the wife's name. Michelle had a 13-hour surgery on Thursday. And uh, she is, uh, my wife and I went up and saw her yesterday, her and her husband yesterday. She is recovering and doing well, but she has a long road of recovery. I mean, a long road of recovery. They're the newest members of our church, and we want to take care of them. At the end of the service, uh, there will be a, uh, a gentleman. Jason, raise your hand. Everybody turn around and look at Jason. Jason will be standing in the back by the table with a piece of paper, and we would like to provide meals for the next seven days uh, for uh, the LeBrock family. So if you would see Jason, let him know what day that you can do if you're able to help provide a hot meal to them as uh, Michelle is recovering from surgery. Mark can cook okay, but I'm sure not as good as Michelle. So we'll want to make sure that they're uh, well-fed and not food poisoned. So uh, get back there and let them know, and we'll, we'll make, make a mention of that at the end of the service. All right, with that said, we'll have our choir uh, come and sing for us.
please take your hymnals one last time and turn to hymn 22, How Great Thou Art. Hymn 22, we'll do the first and the last. And yes, let's stand together, please. my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made, I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to Thee. How great Thou art, how great Thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to Thee. How great Thou art, how great Thou art. When Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart. Then I shall bow in humble adoration and there proclaim, My God, how great Thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to Thee. How great Thou art, how great Thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to Thee. How great Thou art, how great Thou Leave your hymnals open there. Why don't we sing that chorus a cappello? We'll slow it down a little bit. Think about the words that you're singing there. Then sings my soul. Is that how the chorus begins? And sings my soul. Ready? Here we go. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to Thee. How great Thou art. How great Thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to Thee. How great Thou art, how great Thou art. Amen. You may be seated. Ushers, if you would make your way forward. There's a Valentine's couples uh, uh, banquet coming up February 10th. Uh, many of you have already signed up, uh, but there is still room available for the uh, banquet. Please let me know if you are interested in uh, being a part of that. Uh, it's $60 uh, cost for the banquet. Uh, please do not hand the money to me. Uh, in an envelope in front of you, please designate Valentine's banquet and submit it to the ushers uh, as an offering. Uh, so if you are interested in that, just please come to me. Let me know that you're interested so I can have record of you um, wanting to go. Uh, February 10th at 6 p.m. There's more um, or there's a slide uh, uh, on the show for, for you to see for that um, 
banquet there. So please come see me after service if you're interested. If I could have Mike Jankowski pray for this morning's offering. Thou in me 
was really good. The lady in the middle did the best, though. <laughs> Those of you who are visiting, that's the one I'm married to. Amen. All right. That's called points for later. Cha-ching. Amen. All right. Second Corinthians chapter 5 in your Bibles. Second Corinthians 5. I encourage you to get involved around here. One uh, change to the uh, bulletin there, there's an announcement about Soul Winners Club. We will not be starting that up uh, for the foreseeable future. Uh, we are in, working on it, but don't have a date yet to announce. So you see that there in the top of your bulletin. You can forego that announcement. We, do, we would like to encourage every dating and married adult couple, an adult would constitute 18 and up, uh, to uh, come to our Valentine banquet. And so 60 bucks a couple at a country club for a dinner, a buffet, you can't really beat that price. And you'll have a great time if you come. Um, the uh, got a, a, just a fun, exciting night planned, and then our chili cook-off. We'll say more about that next week, but you'll want to be involved in that as well. So get involved around here, and uh, you'll um, get to know your church family even better. All right, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Second Corinthians 5. We'll read verses 19 and 21 in unison out loud. I'll read verses 18 and 20. And you can follow me silently in your Bibles. Beginning in verse 18, the Bible says, And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespass unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did Beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. This month we're going to be looking at the doctrine of salvation in great depth, trying to understand it better. The title of the message this morning is this, Understanding the Ministry, the Ministry of Reconciliation. It's a big, fancy word. Maybe hard to understand, but hopefully by the time you leave today, you'll be very, very, very well acquainted with it. Let's pray. God, I ask this morning you'd help us. Help us as we begin to not only know that we are saved, but to understand the science behind it. And I pray that if there's one today here that is not, not clear about what it takes to get into heaven, maybe they came in with a preconceived idea from a, from what man has taught them or from what life and the culture abroad has taught them. May 
we be willing to check those opinions at the door and look at what your Bible says. Lord, we're not here to cram Baptist doctrine down anybody's throat. We're here to teach the Bible. And so, Lord, may the Bible reign and rule supreme in our hearts and lives. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Shortly after the turn of the century, Japan, the the 20th century, Japan invaded, conquered, and occupied Korea. Of all of their oppressors, Japan was the most ruthless. They overwhelmed the Koreans with a brutality that would sicken the strongest of stomachs. Their crimes against women and children were inhumane. Many Koreans of the next generation would live with the physical and emotional scars from the Japanese occupation. One group singled out for concentrated oppression was the Christians. While the Japanese army overpowered Korea, one of the first things they did was board up the evangelical churches and eject most foreign missionaries. The conquerors started by refusing to allow churches to meet and jailing many of the key Christian spokesmen. The oppression intensified as the Japanese military increased its profile in the South Pacific. The land of the rising sun spread its influence through a reign of savage brutality. Anguish filled the hearts of the oppressed and kindled hatred deep in their souls. There was one pastor that persistently entreated his local Japanese police chief for permission to meet for services. His nagging was finally accommodated and the police chief offered to unlock his church for one meeting. It didn't take long for word to travel. Committed Christians starving for an opportunity for unhindered worship quickly made their plans. Long before dawn on that promised Sunday, Korean families through a wide area made their way to the church. They passed the staring eyes of their Japanese captors, but nothing was going to steal their joy. As they closed the doors behind them, they shut out the cares of oppression and shut in a burning spirit anxious to glorify their Lord. The Korean church has always had a reputation as a singing church. Their voices of praise could not be concealed inside the little wooden frame sanctuary. Song after song rang through the open windows into the bright Sunday morning. For a handful of peasants listening nearby, the last two songs this congregation sang seemed suspended in time. It was during a stanza of Near My God to Thee that the Japanese police chief, chief waiting outside gave the orders. The people toward the back of the church could hear them when they barricaded the doors, but no one had realized that the building was doused in kerosene until they smelled the smoke. The dried wooden skin of the small church quickly ignited. Fumes filled the structure as tongues of flame began to lick the baseboard on the interior walls. There was an immediate rush for the windows, but momentarily, uh, momentary hope recoiled in horror as the men climbing out the windows came crashing back inside, their bodies ripped by a hail of bullets. The good pastor knew it was the end. With a calm that comes from confidence, he led his congregation in a hymn whose words served as a fitting farewell to earth and a long salutation to heaven. The first few words were all the prompting the terrified worshipers needed. With smoke burning their eyes, they instantly joined as one to sing their hope and leave their legacy. Their song became a serenade to the horrified and helpless witnesses outside. 
Their words also tugged at the hearts of the cruel men who oversaw this flaming execution of the innocent. They sang, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would He devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Just before the roof collapsed, they sang the last verse. Their words an eternal testimony to their faith. But drops of grief, the song says, can ne'er repay. The debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I can do. At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight. Now I am happy all the day. The strains of music and wails of children were lost in a roar of flames. The elements that once formed bone and flesh mixed with the smoke dissipated into the air. The bodies that once housed life fused with the charred rubble of a building that once housed a church But the souls who left singing finished their chorus in the throne room of God. Clearing the incinerator remains was the easy part. Erasing the hate would take decades. For some of the relatives of the victims, this carnage was too much. Evil had stooped to a new low. There seemed to be no way to curb their bitter loathing of the Japanese. We'll come back to the story a little later. This morning I propose that God has called each Christian to serve in His ministry. You say, well, what ministry is that? Well, 2 Corinthians 5 tells us it's the ministry of reconciliation. This is an opportunity to help uh, renew or fix our neighbor's broken relationship with God and help us to fix mankind's broken relationship with their fellow human. Christian, God has not called you to harbor grudges. God has not called you to hatred and bitterness. God has called us to follow His example and to bear the cross of forgiveness, of healing, and reconciliation. Let's look at five concepts that will help us to understand the ministry of reconciliation. Number one, notice this, the estrangement in our relationships. If you have a bulletin there on the back of your bulletin, is a place to take notes. I would encourage you to jot down what comes up on the screen there and any other things said today that might speak to you so you can meditate on the message later. Number one, the estrangement in our, in our relationships. Notice first letter A, the offender, the offender. It's pretty easy to see from the story that we just shared who the offenders were, was, can't we? It's the Japanese army. How evil you must be to say, okay, sure, we'll let you worship, only to burn their bodies in mass. Do you know that you and I are guilty of being offenders as well? Romans chapter 5, verse 10. Listen to this verse. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Who is the enemy of God? We were. The men and women who God created. Can I be a little more specific? I was. You were. You say, oh, I don't want to hear that I was the enemy of God or that I am the enemy of God. 
My friend, if you're breathing air in and out of your lungs and you have committed sin, you are the enemy of God. You say, oh, but I'm a good person. Trust me, Bible says in Isaiah, and Isaiah saw God in his presence through a vision. Isaiah wrote down himself, one of the best men of his time, all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags in the sight of God. You're not good. If I held up a white shirt that had been washed 400 times, and I held up a, uh, and put it down in a blanket of snow that was pure and white, you would say, that shirt's really not that white. Your righteousnesses are filthy compared to His perfection. His perfection. We're the enemies of God. We are the offender. We are the offender. Letter B, we see the offended. The offended. Romans chapter 5, verse 10 again. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. How? By the death of His Son. Who was offended through our sin? Who was offended through Adam's choice to eat the fruit? God was the offended. God created Adam and Eve perfect. But He gave them a free will to choose to disobey Him. And in so doing, choose against Him. Now, some would say, well, why did God put Adam and Eve in the garden and put the tree there? God didn't want robots. God didn't want Adam and Eve to get up every day and to love Him. Because they didn't have any other choice. God wanted Adam to get up every day, walk past that tree and say, I choose God instead of choosing that tree. And every day God said, thank you. Thank you. Now the animals, they live by instinct. God did not want mankind to live by instinct. God wanted mankind to choose Him over sin. So He had to put the tree there so that that free will choice would exist. And Adam and Eve looked at the tree one day and they chose the tree over God. And in so doing, they... They have condemned all of their children, that would be all of us here today, every human being that's ever lived, through their action. Who was offended by that choice? God was. Number two, let's jump into this. Let's look at the explanation of reconciliation. Now, that word, number two, the explanation of reconciliation, that word reconciliation, that's an expensive sounding religious term, isn't it? Like a $500 word, right? And you go, reconciliation. That's six syllables, Pastor. I mean, I usually speak in terms of three syllables or or less. Six syllables, Pastor. uh, What does that word mean? It carries great significance, both for the health of our relationship with our Creator and our relationship with our fellow man. Well, what does it mean? We find that some form of the word reconciled five times in just three verses. I'd say it's important. Five times in three verses. Romans 5, 18 through 20, five times you find that word in verses 18, 19, and 20. And then verse 21 gives us an example of what it is. We'll we'll get to that here in a minute. There are two forms of the word here. Now, I hate to get technical on you, so stay with me here, because when I get technical, I generally lose people. So pay attention on purpose, all right? How many of you know at least some of the eight parts of speech? Can I see your hand? You knew some. They don't teach those in school anymore, so I have to ask. All right, I'm serious. They don't teach those in school anymore. How many know the difference between a noun and a verb? Can I see your hand? If you know the difference between a noun and a verb, 
Excellent. All right. So you have the noun version of reconcile and you have the verb version of reconcile. We're going to define both. They're slightly different. They mean about the same thing, slightly different. We're going to define both. but We're going to begin by looking at the verb. All right. If you look there in verse 18, it says there who hath reconciled. That's a verb who hath reconciled. All right. Uh, there are three definitions for the verb reconciled, and I believe these are stages of reconciliation. You have stage one, stage two, stage three, or stage A, stage B, and stage C. All right. They stack on top of each other. All right. Let me give you stage number one, letter A, to compound a difference, to compound a difference. Now, that word compound simply means to accept or to recognize. You're accepting, you're recognizing that there is a difference. To simply put it this way, you cannot fix a problem until you first admit that you have one. You know how many people I've sat down with and said, you're a sinner. And they said, no, I'm not. Excuse me? Uh, I was talking to, I believe it was Mike Yankowski back here. He goes in the nursing home. He's sitting down with a 90-something-year-old, uh, I believe it was a lady. Was it a lady or a guy? Of course it was. No, I'm just teasing. Uh, I'm teasing. I'm teasing. Amen. Um, and she said, I've never done anything wrong. In her 90s, I've never done anything wrong. And he said, well, have you ever told a lie? No. Uh-uh. You ever had a bad attitude? No. He must have went through that with her, what, 15 different ways. And no, I'm perfect. I'm perfect. Now, that's odd. You normally don't get that out of adults. But can I say I get it from kids a lot? Maybe they're afraid of getting in trouble if they admit to doing something wrong. But... No, I haven't done anything wrong. I'm, I'm perfect. My friend, you can't fix a problem until you admit that there is a problem. Yeah. Now, most people will not claim they're perfect, but they'll claim that they have lived a good enough life where God will accept them. And I'm here to tell you, no, he won't. You see, there's two ways to get in heaven. It's either through uh, believing in the sacrifice of Christ or living a life completely and totally absent of sin. That's it. That's it. You can't be good enough to get to heaven. You don't get to stand at the gate of heaven one day and say, well, I had more good deeds than bad deeds, and my good deeds crossed out my bad deeds. So that means that because I'm in the positive with good, I get into heaven. And God says, no, no, no. Your good deeds don't matter against your bad deeds. They, they don't erase those out. I could go a month straight without speeding, get pulled over on day 31 or day uh, 32 and, and tell the judge, well, I didn't speed at all last month. He says it doesn't matter. Well, doesn't my non-speeding days cancel out my speeding days? No, you sped, pay the fine. One day you're going to stand in front of God and you have sin on your record. Your good does not erase your bad. To compound a difference. You husbands ever gotten a cold shoulder from your wife? Should I have you raise your hand? No, don't do that. You ever gotten a cold shoulder from your wife? And you say to her after, you know, being oblivious to it all day, like, you know what, I think she might be a little upset with me. Duh. <laughs> and you say to her, hey, honey, what's wrong? What does she say back? Nothing. <laughs> Am I the only one? No, I'm just teasing. Um, she really wants you to dig deeper with that word nothing. You can't reconcile a problem until there is a mutual agreement that there is a problem and offense. Stage two, letter B, we see to change mutually, to change mutually. In most offenses, both parties must make some changes before both parties can be reconciled to each other. Now, in the case of us and God, he never makes any mistakes. We make the mistake. 
But can I tell you, in most friction inside of a uh, human relationship, both parties generally have made some mistakes. And that word reconcile really is a financial term. All right? It's an accounting term. And uh, think of a ledger. All right? You whip out the credit card. You're out of money. You whip out the credit card. Hopefully you don't make this mistake. And you want some McDonald's, so you swipe. You know what uh, Visa or MasterCard or American Express does? They add it to the ledger. And the debt gets a little bit greater every time you swipe. All right? And uh, you turn around at the end, and you've got all of these ledgers of, of debts that have been accumulated. And then at the end of the month, they compound that with interest, don't they? And uh, you turn around, and you've got this red number of, of what you owe and a ledger of debt. Now, think of this in terms of a relational debt, and it isn't swiping your credit card and uh, racking up financial debt. It's wrapping up emotional debt against somebody. You have created this offense, and now you have this ledger debt, this uh, emotional debt, and in order for there to be reconciliation of a financial ledger, the debt must be paid, uh, or the debt must be forgiven, one of the other, and in order for there to be a, a reconciliation of an emotional debt, the debt must either be paid or forgiven by the party that's been offended. Now, both parties generally have to agree that there was, first, that there is a debt, and then the second step is that both parties must be willing to forgive the emotional debt, and both must be willing to make changes necessary to prevent further offenses from being added to a, a emotional ledger. Letter C, we see it means simply to reconcile. To reconcile. What does reconciliation mean? Well, step one is to compound or accept the difference. Step two is to make mutual changes. And step three is to reconcile. What I mean by this here, uh, uh, for a uh, lack of a simpler way of putting it, is that both parties must agree to consistently make adjustments, little adjustments, as the relationship goes so that the ledger sheet stays forgiven and the reconciling may, uh, remains consistent. Think of driving a car down the road. You don't just hold the wheel. You just a little left, you just a little to the right, and you just a little left, you just a little right. If you just hold the wheel with the bumps in the roads and the way things are designed, if you just hold the wheel and don't make any adjustments, you're going to land in the ditch. Or you're going to land in the opposing traffic and have a head-on accident. You've got to make those little adjustments. So that is the third step. You first admit or uh, uh, compound a difference. You accept a difference uh, there. You change mutually, and then you reconcile consistently. Number three, notice uh, the elements of reconciliation. Now, if you are lost, let me ask you to jump on board right here, because this is the meat of the sermon. And I'm going to illustrate what I'm about to share with you several different ways. I'm going to offer you a lot of illustrations. You came to church today not really understanding reconciliation. If you'll listen through point three, you'll understand it when I get through. All right? Now, I'm going to give you rapid fire an A, a B, a C, and a D. And I'm going to show you how these work together. All right? Uh, so, notice letter A from the offender, rebellion through selfishness. All right? I'm going, to, I'm going to give you no explanation at first. We'll come back and explain in a minute. Rebellion through selfishness. Letter B, the offended, redemption through selflessness. Redemption through selflessness. These will be on the screen for a bit. You'll have time to write them down if you want to do that. Letter C, you see offended. The offended again. Remission through sacrifice. And in my notes, I don't think it's going to be on the screen there. In my notes, um, very good suffering. That was the word I was actually wanting. Remission through suffering. And then letter D, uh, the offender uh, must show repentance through submission. Repentance through submission. This is the process of reconciliation. 
Let me illustrate, all right? Let me give you some biblical examples of forgiveness and reconciliation. By the way, they're not the same thing. They're not the same thing. I'm going to prove that to you here. Think of the story of Adam and Eve in humanity. Okay, letter A, rebellion through selfishness. How did the offender, Adam and Eve, choose rebellion? Remember, God put them in the garden. We talked about that a minute ago, right? We all know the story. You all have grown up hearing the story, I'm sure, hundreds of times. By the way, we don't know if it was an apple or a plum or a kiwi. We don't know what fruit it was. There was a fruit there. God said, don't eat it. And uh, Eve was deceived. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14 says, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. So Eve is by the tree. Uh, Satan slithers up there in the form of a snake next to Eve. And he says, Yea, hath God said, Thou shalt not eat of the, of the tree. And uh, she says, We're not supposed to touch it or eat it. Well, God had never said touch it. That was probably Adam's rule to keep her away from eating it. And... Um, uh, uh, Eve said, or Satan said, uh, you're not going to die. If you eat it, you'll, not only will you live forever, you'll know the difference between good and evil. And Satan said, oh, really? And in her deception, she reached up and she grabbed that fruit off that tree. The Bible says it was pleasant to the eyes. She took it and she took a bite. And she sinned. She chose against God, being deceived. She walks up to Adam because usually when we sin, we must involve others in some way. So we don't want to be alone. And she says to Adam, hey, Adam, look what I ate. It was delicious. You ought to try some too. Adam was not deceived. Adam heard Eve's reasoning, but he was not deceived. And Adam looked at that beautiful wife that God had given him. Adam looked up at God, and he said, I love my wife more than I love you. I would rather suffer with my wife than see her suffer alone. He took that fruit from her and he ate it. And he chose to rebel against God's plan for humanity. Oh, Adam, I wish you could have known all of the children that would die from cancer because of that choice. Oh, Adam, I wish you could have known how the murderous crimes that would come as a result of that choice. Oh, Adam, I wish you could have known about all the rape and sexual abuses that would come because of that choice. Oh, Adam, I wish you could have known of the rebellion and the hurt and the the loneliness and the suicide that would come as a result of your choice to cast all of humanity into a downward spiral of sin and sin's curse. Rebellion. Rebellion through selfishness. He said, I want to please myself more than I want to be submissive to God. You know what's amazing about that is that when people offend us, as deep as God was offended, and that's not possible, but when people deeply offend us, generally there's a pushback, there's a refusal to associate, there's a rejection, but not with our God. Immediately when Adam ate that fruit, God began to set in place the next step of reconciliation, and that's redemption. Redemption through through selflessness. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 says, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and bruise thy seed and... And her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt uh, bruise his seal. Here God was 
God came down to the Garden of Eden. He looked at Adam and Eve and the serpent. And he said to Adam, what is it that thou hast done? And he said, uh, I ate of the fruit that, 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 that from the woman that thou gavest me. And, and Eve, uh, uh, God looked at Eve and said, what have you done? And she said, uh, 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 the serpent beguiled me. And, and God looked at the serpent and he said, uh, uh, he gave all three of them a punishment. Adam's punishment was that he'd have to sweat and, 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 and experience pain as he labored to provide for his family. And Eve would experience pain through childbirth. And God God looked at the serpent. He said, you will, you will sit on your belly and eat dust the rest of your days. He said, uh, because you have done this thing, uh, uh, you will bruise uh, the hill, heel of Eve and her seed. You have caused uh, great sin and pain. But that uh, a child of hers that will come in the form of redemption's plan, he's going to crush your head. And that's exactly what Jesus did. God set in place that day redemption's plan. Man chose to rebel against God. God looked down and said, I am going to redeem you. Selfishly, God could have looked at Adam and Eve and said, I don't want you. You don't want me. I don't want you. You don't want to uh, have perfect peace with me. I want nothing to do with you. He could have condemned them that day, but he didn't. Instead, he set in place redemption's plan. But that's not all he did. The third step in the uh, the, the plan for uh, reconciliation is remission or pardon. Through suffering. You know, Jesus came down. He hung on the cross. And in so doing, He became the sin of all humanity. All the way from Adam and Eve's rebellion and disobedience, all the way down to the last human being that will ever live and the last sin that will be committed and every sin in between, Jesus, God gathered together the sins of the world and placed them on Jesus. And Jesus suffered in my place and suffered in your place, suffered for every single sinner so that they could be forgiven. And then we find that in order to be reconciled to God, last step is repentance. You know, we're all born condemned, John three seventeen tells us. You're not born a good person on your way to heaven. You're born a sinner on your way to hell. You, don't, you may not like that. It may not be kosher with the culture. But I'm here to tell you that it's kosher with the Bible. It's kosher with truth. And sometimes truth is uncomfortable, but my friend, we deserve to burn in a place called hell for our sin. But God said, I love my creation. I want to redeem my creation. And so I'm going to send down my son. And instead of allowing uh, the, the person who committed the sin to suffer, I'm going to allow my son to suffer in their place. I'm going to offer forgiveness to everyone and then it's up to them to repent from their sin or rather repent from their unbelief and choose my son and his offer for salvation. And those that do that are reconciled back to God. Let me give you some other examples here in the Bible of this process we see here on the screen. How about Joseph and his brothers? I'll be brief here. But how about Joseph and his brothers? Remember, Joseph was the uh, the only son of Rachel, and uh, uh, his father Jacob had four wives, and all the other children were coming from these other wives. And Joseph, at that point, was the only son of Rachel. She'd end up dying and giving childbirth to a second son. And Joseph was his favorite, and Joseph uh, was treated with favoritism. And the ten older brothers hated Joseph, and so the day came where Joseph came to check on them in the field, and Joseph was thrown into a pit and then sold into slavery. The offender were the brothers that rebelled against what was right and they sold their brother into slavery. Oh, I'm sure that for Joseph it was a little bit more difficult to complete letters B and C than it definitely it was for God and humanity. But we know that God was doing a work on Joseph's heart. 
Joseph eventually formulated a plan of redemption to where he could bring back unity in his home. The day came where his brothers showed up. Uh, if you're not unfamiliar with the story, I'll just give you a really quick version of it here. But Joseph is sold into slavery. He's taken to Egypt. He's put up on the block. A man named Potiphar in Egypt buys him. He starts out as the lowest of low of servants in the home of Potiphar. Potiphar being a very rich and wealthy man. He rises because of his hard work and character and his devotion to God. He rises to the top where he is the top slave, the top servant boy in Potiphar's house. And he had everything he wanted to do in Potiphar's house. The only the only thing he was not allowed to touch was Potiphar's wife. Potiphar's wife had her eyes on Joseph, and she wanted to sleep with him. And so when the house was empty one day, she came after Joseph, and Joseph fled out of the house said, I cannot do this. Uh, you are not mine. You belong to my master. I cannot put my hands on you. I cannot touch you. And he fled out of the presence of that, uh, of that, that lascivious, sensual woman, and she didn't get her way, so like a spoiled brat that she was, she pitched a fit and told her husband that Joseph had tried to violate her, and I believe that, Pot- uh, that Potiphar knew his wife was lying, but had no choice but to imprison and jail uh, Joseph and threw him down in jail. So he's gone from most beloved in his father's house to being sold into slavery, to most beloved in Potiphar's house to being thrown down in a pit to where he's going to be rotting away in jail. Again, his hard work and his character and his devotion to God allows him to rise to where even the jailer puts him in charge of the jail there. And uh, eventually he's taken out of that jail through a set of circumstances and brought before Pharaoh. And there in the presence of Pharaoh, he interprets Pharaoh's dream adequately. And he goes from rotting in jail to being the second most powerful man in Egypt which was the greatest country that, uh, of the world that time. Second most powerful man in the world. And he's stowing away food to save the world from a famine. And guess what? When the famine begins, guess who comes walking in the palace doors? Oh, those ten brothers that had sold him into slavery. Here they come. Joseph's now several years older, and he is adapted to Egyptian culture. He does not look like their brother anymore. He looks much different than he did back then. And he's there, and here comes his brothers. And now Joseph had a choice. Am I going to choose reconciliation with them, or am I going to choose to condemn them and push them away? Joseph began a redemption process that day. He questioned them and belittled them and pushed them out. Slowly but surely, he even enslaved one of their brother, one of his brothers, and sent the rest of them home to bring Benjamin back. And then, uh, when Benjamin got there, there was a test. There was a test to see. You know, Joseph had a choice. Am I going to allow the suffering I have gone through to bring about reconciliation with my brother, uh, my brothers, and my father, or am I going to allow the suffering I'm going through to corrode the relationship and break things down? Joseph chose to allow his suffering. To heal. When he saw, notice this here, this is key. When he saw that his brothers were repentant for their actions, reconciliation came. Reconciliation came. Oh, he had forgiven them long before. Reconciliation could not be complete until repentance was present. How about the thief on the cross? How about the thief on the cross? You. You know that the Bible tells us in John 1 that Jesus created this thief, this malefactor. He, he put him in the womb of his mother. Here this man grew up, chose a life of crime, chose a life of great sin, thievery, possibly murder. We don't know what he did, but whatever it was, it was worthy of crucifixion. They took him and they nailed him on a cross next to Jesus. 
We know that the rebellion was present in the heart of the thief. Letter B, we know that Jesus had set in place back in the book of Genesis a plan to redeem this, this malefactor. We know that the remission was taking place. The pardon was being created right there next to Him while He hung on that cross. And uh, uh, He looks over at Jesus and He says to Him, He says what? He says, remember me. Uh, here's my heart of repentance. I turn to you. I believe that you're dying to redeem my soul. And God looks over at this thief and He says, you have the repentance necessary inside of my forgiveness. And He looks back at him and he says, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. For me that day was April 8th, 1988. I realized that my sin was offensive to a holy God. I realized that God had set in place a redemption plan whereas to redeem my soul. I realized that Jesus completed that redemption plan by suffering because of my sin on the cross. And as a small boy, I bowed my head in repentance. I turned from an attitude of unbelief in God and I chose to believe in what Jesus had done for me. And that day, I was reconciled to God. Let me give you some more examples here. And let me show you how that for many people, steps A, B, and C are completed, but step four never happens. And I've labeled this section examples of forgiveness without reconciliation. I'm going to say something here today that for many churchgoers, regular churchgoers, might sound a little off. But I think if you'll hear me out, you'll realize it's not off at all. In fact, if I would have heard this statement two weeks ago, I probably wouldn't have agreed with it. But after great study on the topic of reconciliation, I believe this to be very biblically accurate. Every human being ever born has been already forgiven for their sin. But most humans never become reconciled back to God. Let me prove this to you. Turn, turn over with me to Luke chapter 23. Hold your place in 2 Corinthians there. Luke chapter 23. We looked at the thief that believed. How about the thief that didn't believe? Jesus was crucified between two thieves. One was forgiven and reconciled. The other was forgiven but never reconciled. The difference is, step four, that repentance never existed. Look at verse 39 with me of Luke 23. It says there in... I'm going to begin reading and catch up when you get there. And one of the malefactors, which were hanged, railed on him, saying, If thou be the Christ, save thyself and us. Do you see a spirit of repentance there? Because I sure don't. Now, Jesus was hanging on the cross, creating the pardon and the forgiveness for this man. And he looked at the forgiveness of God and he rejected it. He said, I don't want you to save my soul. I want you to save my flesh. Get me off this cross. Verse 40, but the other answered, answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God? And that really there is the issue. Seeing thou art in the same condemnation. This man had no fear of God. He had no repentance in his soul for what he had done. God was offering him forgiveness and he turned it away. Let me provide you more evidence that God forgives by the way, if you die without being reconciled, the forgiveness gets pulled off the table. And that's why you suffer in hell. Look down at verse 34, or rather look up at verse 34 of the same chapter. Luke 23, verse 34. The Bible says, the Lord, Then said Jesus, Father, this is Jesus speaking to God in heaven, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
What's happening here? The chief priests and the scribes are mocking him. They're walking in front of the cross. They're wagging their heads. They're saying, if thou be the Christ, save thyself. He saved others. Himself he cannot save. The rest of the verse says they parted his raiments and cast lots. That robe they had put on him was meant at the base of the cross, gambling over that robe. And Jesus says, forgive them. Forgive them. You know why? Because the rebellion was present. The redemption plan had already been put in place thousands of years prior. The remission or forgiveness or the pardon was being created and offered through the suffering of Jesus on the cross. But those there that day, many of them, well, there was no repentance, so there was no reconciliation. You know what it takes for you to really be reconciled back to God? Look at that last word on letter D. It takes submission. It takes a putting down your hands and saying, I'm not good enough to get to heaven. I can't, be, I can't get the ledger of my sins uh, 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 forgiven. I can't get that balance zeroed out because I am filthy in my sin. It takes repentance and summoning to God and saying, I can't, but you can. You can. You can forgive me. Not only can you forgive me, but through my repentance, you can reconcile my debt, my sin debt. We have a promise from God that if we will, He does. Now, let me talk about those four in, in, inside of being a Christian. We've looked at this mostly at being lost, but how about for the saved? Now, if you've been saved, your eternal sin debt has been canceled, you've been forgiven, and your relationship has changed from creator, creation, uh, uh, to... Uh, uh, Father and Son. So, verse 17 of our passage says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature or a new creation. Old things are passed away. All things are become new. You've become a new creation in Christ. There's a new relationship there. Father and Son. And you know what? That applies right there. That replies right there for us as well. The offender. You know, if my son Matthew chooses to disobey me or rebel against me, he is the offender. And letter B, I'm the uh, offended. I must choose whether or not I want that reconciled to ultimately be uh, uh, brought back or not. There must be redemption through my own selflessness of saying, you know what, you've offended me, but I'm willing to let it go. I'm willing to redeem our relationship and bring it back. Uh, then letter C, remission through suffering. Generally, when my son does something wrong, it offends me. It causes emotional suffering on my part. And then I must see from him a spirit of repentance. And when that repentance is present and my, uh, my remission is offered, there is reconciliation that's brought whole. The same is true for you and God. You must realize that your sin as his child is offensive. You must realize that He offers you freely a redemption plan. You must realize that He uh, remissively has suffered through your offense. And you must come to Him and you must apologize and confess your sin. That's why 1 John 1, nine, written to Christians, says if we confess our sins, repentance, He is faithful and just, remissive, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Keep a short account with God. You've done wrong, apologize. Come to Him with a repentant heart. Number one, we see the estrangement. Number two, the explanation. Number three, we see the elements. Number four, let's look at the enemies of reconciliation. The enemies of reconciliation. The truth is, Christian, most of us, at best, struggle with living inside the ministry of reconciliation. 
We're quick to harbor anger and hurt. We don't want to let go of offenses. You got hurt at church 20 years ago, and you still can't stand to even see that person. Such and such said something to you that hurt your feelings, and you will not let it go. You, uh, you, you got into it with a sibling, or you had a business partner that took advantage of you and drained the account dry and left, or uh, uh, you, you were stepped on by a spouse, and, and, and there's been divorce from that, and pain and hurt from their, uh, uh, their careless attitude and actions. There's not a spirit of desire to reconcile. Now listen. Again, both parties have an act for reconciliation. You must be willing to forgive them and they, and through your suffering. They must be willing to repent. And Christian, let me just tell you right now, please don't miss this. There are people in my life right now, my relationship with them is not reconciled. They offended me. And I've been willing to forgive them. They don't want to be forgiven. You know how we're trained as kids? You know, you get into it with your sibling, you're mad at each other, and mom brings you together, and she says, say I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Mean it! I'm sorry. Say I forgive you. I don't forgive him. Say it! Okay, I forgive you. Now hug. Now kiss. Whoa! Too far, Mom. Too far. Um... And you know what we're trained by our parents? And I'm not saying that action's wrong. I think you need to make kids make up and all that stuff. But you know that what the, the counter effect in that is, is that we only forgive someone when they apologize to us. You know, you're supposed to forgive someone even if they're not repentant. Isn't that what Jesus did? We looked at that. He offered forgiveness to the people who didn't even know they were being offensive. He said, you're driving, the Roman citizens were just doing their job. The Roman soldiers were doing their job. That's what they did was perform executions. Jesus looks at them and says, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. He offered forgiveness regardless of their attitude, even though most of them would reject it. Ministry of reconciliation. Christian, you're not called to harbor anger. You're not called to harbor sin in your heart because of someone else's action. You're called to a spirit of forgiveness. And you have a choice. That person that's hurt you and made you suffer, are you going to allow that suffering to corrode away your spirit through bitterness and and like acid eat away at you on the inside? Or are you going to instead turn and say, I'm going to allow this suffering to create forgiveness. Let me quickly go through these. Letter A, letter B, and letter C. Letter A, we see lust of the flesh. Lust of the flesh or unrighteousness. Let me read for you a verse. Listen closely. 2 Timothy 2, verse 22. Paul instructs his preacher boy, Timothy, Flee also youthful lusts, but follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace, and then the call on the Lord with a pure heart. So we see here the elements of reconciliation are summed up in this verse. Righteousness, faith, charity, peace, and pure prayer. Peace being the key word there. Reconciliation or peace brought to a relationship. What is the enemy of these elements? Youthful lust. Youthful lust. James 4.1, From whence comes wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of the lusts that war in your members? The lust of the flesh can be summed up in one word, and that word is unrighteousness. Christian, do you know why it is that you can't forgive the one who has offended you so deeply? This might hurt. This might sting a little bit. Do you know why? 
because you are filled with unrighteousness. Do you know why it is that you can't repent of your offense and be reconciled to the one who is offering you forgiveness? Because you're filled with unrighteousness. Let me show you in Scripture that what I'm saying is true. Very quickly. James 3.18 And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. So, what are the fruits of righteousness? There's sown in peace. These people who have fruits of righteousness, they make peace. They reconcile. Isaiah 32.17 And the work of righteousness shall be peace. And the effect of the righteousness, quietness and assurance forever. So, what are the works of righteousness? Peace, their quietness, their assurance, not strife and war and animosity. But maybe my favorite verse on this topic is Psalm 85.10. Listen to how poetic this verse is. Listen to how beautiful uh, the psalmist describes this concept I'm trying to explain to you. It says, their mercy and truth are met together. Listen to the next part. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Righteousness and peace are in love. If there isn't peace in a relationship that you have, and you're not willing to uh, right the wrong, if that person who's offended you is is repentant, that's because you're filled with unrighteousness. Because righteousness and peace, they kiss each other. Kiss each other. Christian, are you involved in the ministry of reconciliation? Or has the enemies of reconciliation got you? Lust of the flesh, letter B. Look at here, lack of understanding. Lack of understanding. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. My wife used this in her devotional uh, with the ladies uh, on Tuesday, and, and, and I thought it was great. I, I'd insert it here. It says, Who his own self, speaking of Jesus, bear our sins in his own body on the tree. That we, being dead to sins, should live under righteousness. There's that ministry of reconciliation. How? By whose stripes ye were healed. We have a world that looks at Christianity as screwy and oddball. They call us narrow-minded bigots. Let me show you how narrow-minded I am. I'm as narrow-minded as the book pages of that book right there. That's how narrow-minded I am. You know why? This book is truth. You know what this book offers? Redemption and reconciliation. You want to be the creation, part of the creation that, that, that rejected and rebelled against God? God had every right to look at Adam and Eve and say, You're putrid to me. I can't stand you. All of you and your human race can go on and live in the damnation of hell. But instead, Jesus said, No, you know what? I'm going to give you a second chance. There's so many people that are so arrogant and proud. They want to shake their fist at God. And they want to say to God, you're so narrow-minded, that's the only way you're going to create for me to get in heaven. And God uh, gathers together those people that reject His plan of redemption and He casts them into hell. Do you know why? Because you would do the same thing if you were God. He created for them redemption and they thumb their nose at it in their arrogance and say, give me another way. And God says... No, I killed my son on a cross for you. And that's not good enough. You want to call my son narrow-minded when I have created redemption's plan.